0: Wir riechen an die Zahlen, Welcome one and all to Vision On Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. On this week's Vision On Sound we welcome Michael Seely who is well known in archive television circles for the books he's written about certain television series and for his biographies of some well-recognised names from television production from the 60s and 70s. Prophets of Doom, his unauthorised history of the BBC television series Doomwatch, is very possibly the definitive current work detailing the production of that well-remembered and influential show that ran for three series between February 1970 and August 1972. This series, which told terrifying tales based around the fears of the possible corruption and future progress of science, as well as breaking the hearts of a nation after an incident at the end of a pier, was created by Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis, who had both written scripts for 1960s Doctor Who, which also examined the dramatic possibilities that came about when you chose to imagine what horrors some areas of modern science might unleash into the world. Whether it was computers seeking world domination or the dehumanizing possibilities of overzealous replacement of human organs and body parts with artificial equivalents, you can be pretty sure that they had a hand in it, as it were. And the controversy-creating series Doomwatch does seem to be the natural progression of all of their what-if discussions dealing, as it did, with the terrors of plastic viruses, super-evolved rats, pollution and the consequences of unscientific experimentation when unfettered by any kind of morality or control. Kit Pedler was brought aboard by the Doctor Who production team to add his scientific imagination into the mix of the types of stories they wanted to tell, and his own somewhat fascinating life story was one of those that Michael also felt compelled to cover in his well-received biography. Michael also wrote a biography of the much-loved and well-regarded television director, Douglas Canfield, whose distinctive touch graced many a series in the 1960s and 1970s, from Swizzlewick to Beaugest, Zed Cars to The Sweeney, Public Eye to The Lotus Eaters, Danger UXB to Vandervalk, and many others, quite a few of which we have discussed in this show over the past couple of years. In preparation for today's programme, and because he also has a new book looking into the series coming out fairly soon, I rewatched one of his later works, the four-part serial The Nightmare Man, adapted by Robert Holmes for the BBC from the book Child of Vodgenoi by David Wiltshire, which terrified viewers on Friday evenings back in May 1981, so we chat about that for a while. So let's fire up the Fab Radio International time engines and head back first to the early 1970s and find out a little bit more about what was going on beneath the surface when Dr Spencer Quist and his Doomwatch team were trying their best to set the world to rights in the face of crippling and frustrating levels of complacency and apathy. Fifty years ago? Seems like yesterday. Michael, how the heck are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Surely good. Welcome aboard. We've uh, not had you on on the programme before, so that's going to be an interesting, hopefully an interesting new voice for people. Now, you've written several books on television, particularly cult television over the years. Yeah. Was the first one you wrote the Doomwatch book? Yes, there
1: were three and they're all linked. Right. And the first thing I really wanted to do was a Kit Peddler biography. Because oh, I was okay. helping out on this website
0: yeah.
1: about Doomwatch. It was a marvellous site because they went into depth and detail. Nothing was too trivial for them. Okay. <laughs> my cup of tea. For years, I've been like. a
0: Doomwatch
1: fan. Well, yeah, for years, I've been a Doomwatch fan. And I wanted to see a site like this. Hmm. And other people had attempted it. But I don't think these are the sort of things you can do on your own. You need help. Yeah. And so I offered to help in a sort of a bleak way. And, um, and Scott Burdett, who ran the site, seized upon me. And um, so I spent about a year doing that. And as anything went on that site about anything connected with Doomwatch, of course, yeah. Kit Hedler, I was discovering there was so much more to that man's life than just, you know, a few storylines of the wheel in space. Yeah. Cybermen. And um, he seemed to be, um, some Doctor Who fans really like to sort of kick him oh, because really? of okay. that scene in the moon base. Oh. remember the scene in the moon base part four and the Cybermen puncture the dome, this pressurized dome. and all oh, the, 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 the tea tree. Yes. and Yeah, exactly. And um, I know exactly what they were thinking. Let's do a depressurization scene like you see on airplane films. Yeah. And have all the air being sucked out and them trying to block it, showing mm. different pressures and things. And of course, it looks staffed. And so, of course, Kit Peather being a scientist, he must know everything because he is a scientist. forgetting mm. the fact that he's actually a biologist <laughs> who's specializing in the eye. Yeah. And so he can't be expected to get everything right. But even though I reckon, even if he, of course, he knew. Mm. He just thought it still was a visually arresting thing Mm. to do. So I was getting really fed up with this. Mm. And um, so I remember thinking it was actually on the anniversary of his death Mm -hmm. in 2011, thinking, you know, this guy needs a proper, thorough biography. Mm. And I am the most unqualified person to do it. Mm. So um, I got in touch with Annika Wills through her publishing place at the time, which was Tim Mm. Hurst. Mm-hmm. And instead of Anikku replying because she doesn't have the internet, he did, and he said, "Oh, who's publishing your Kit pedal biography?" And I thought, "Well, it was going to be a free PDF download actually." Off the <laughs> website. And I said, "Well, <clears throat> you know, <laughs>
0: I'm negotiating." Uh,
1: yeah, and he said. He said, "Yeah, we'd like that." You know, we'd, we'd have uh, that. Okay. So I said, "Fine,
0: cool." Me, a writer, I'm the son of a peasant. Yeah, but, but did you actually have history of that sort of project, or no, have you worked on anything no. like that before? No. So this was just something you really wanted to do?
1: When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. I yeah. used to sort of imagine I could write real big, thick, fancy novels, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd have these big wads of paper and start yeah. from page one. Of course, it gave up. In, in, up in page <laughs> two. Uh, but my dad was a writer. He was a music critic for oh, our okay. local... You know, I live in Norwich and the local newspapers. He was the music critics for it. And then he became a business editor and then mm-hmm. did Chamber of Commerce magazines and things like that. So right. a, in that sense, I was writing in the family. But me, yeah. although I could read and research and apply my mind writing yes I could do but I wasn't very accurate as a writer Mm. as I've never done it professionally I didn't work in an office I haven't worked in an office for about 30 odd years so the thought of doing this I thought well yes I can do it I've been writing for the website I've had no major complaints about grammar and punctuation Mm. and things like that so I thought yeah I could jolly well do this so but at the same time with that email, he said, would you like us to publish the mm. Kit Ben's biography when you've done it? I said, do you fancy a book on Doomwatch? And he went, right. Mm, that would look good next to our title on The Saint. <laughs> so um, that's how that came about. So right. I, I, I was telling my wife that night, like, I've got a two-book deal, me." <laughs> <laughs> that's nice dear the bailiffs are coming at four. I said, Oh, wonderful <laughs> every bit of good news about the book was followed by some disaster in our lives there i, I think
0: that's the arts life <sighs> the life of the artist generally isn't it Absolutely. you're up one minute and the precipice just waits for you yeah.
1: but i did not want to be a suffering writer i wasn't no, that so sort who of does, writer. Yeah. if, yeah. I, if yeah. I was like dear old salmon rushdie writing the wonderful
0: mm. Mm-hmm. But
1: no, you know I'm, I'm I'm just writing about obscure television. Well, I say obscure? doomwatch is she's not obscure? Mm. reasonably obscure television shows to, so to, to, one thing went to another and um firstse publishing ceased training about three months after that, which I thought was <laughs> typical I got I got everything going I' got permissions from the family yeah I'd spoken to most of them, and they were kind enough to allow a totally untried, untested writer research their loved one's life mm.
0: couldn't believe it, and then I got picked up by milk. Oh, yeah. I'm M I K. I would yeah. say I would say Muke, but I don't know why.
1: <laughs> That's quite good. It's better than how they pronounce it. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but they were set up as a response to the collapse of Hearst, so they could right. publish the sort of books he was doing. And again, untried, untested, they took a mm. punt on me. Unfortunately, they said, "Do the Do Much book in six months."
0: Ah. Which was a huge mistake, because I do thorough. Yeah, it's uh, mighty volumes. It's four hundred and sixty pages isn't it? it's, it's i big...
1: suspect they thought i was going to do one of those bullet point books which right is like 125 pages three mm. lines of story three bullet points of fascinating facts mm. followed by a, as if you really want to know my mm. opinion on the episode mm. yeah three out of five no 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 and i made the mistake i sent in a sample chapter mm. just to see am i on the right lines mm. and the publisher said yes yeah, good really good so i thought okay fair enough but six months oh good grief mm. I think halfway through, I went to the BBC's written archives three mm. times. And the third time I had to practically not rewrite the book, but more or less bung in so much stuff that I've already covered mm. because I've discovered all this new information
0: mm.
1: that completely changed the book, basically. Yeah. And it was rushed and it took about five months for them to edit. Right. Doing five pages a day. And my God, the editor, Phil, where he was so thorough. Mm. During that, my mother died. Right. And so this was actually quite a good distraction from all that. Yeah. But it was a torturous, torturous process. And because the book was delayed and delayed and delayed because Phil was taking his time doing a thorough professional job on it Mm -hmm. and being very polite about it. And I was very polite back as well. Mm. I was learning. Mm. Six months was far too. What they should have done was thrown it back at me and said, please rewrite it Mm. rather than six months or whatever it was editing.
0: Mm. Had that happened, how do you think you would have felt as a novice? As a, as a you know, do you think you would have? I would have you,
1: felt I deserved it. Because I always thought I was right. a
0: fraud. Ah, you ah
1: yes, that old <laughs> the thing, Imposter you know, syndrome. Yeah.
0: yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I have it every day, mate. Yeah,
1: yeah, but also, I had bear in mind the the family mm-hmm. were expecting something, and I did not want to let them down. Yeah, I didn't want to be one of these people. Who, like, um, every now and then, someone in John Levine's life would say, I would help you do this. I'll help mm. you write this. I'll help you write that. He'll go, great, mm. great, great. Enthusiasm. He'll do lots mm. of preparation. And he'll never hear from them again. Yeah. Until yeah. I turned up. I, I didn't want that to happen this time. I, I, yeah. I'd i been to Dr. Una Freeston's house in Greenwich. Mm. Hipheader's widow. Because mm-hmm. they were divorced just before he died. And she took two hours out of her life to tell me about their life. Mm-hmm. And um, she would send me the occasional postcard saying what's happening. And I'd send the occasional email back and say, yeah. this is what's happening or this is what's not happening. I was speaking to Carol Topolsky, Kit's eldest daughter, herself an accomplished novelist, a former censor, would you believe? Mm. It was an incredible family. And I mm. spoke to Mark Pedler, the son who had an iffy relationship like a lot of sons do with their dads. Yeah. But it was great. And so I had all these people. And of course, Mark Pedler died during the writing process as well. Oh, okay. Suddenly like that, oof, like his father. Um, so I did not want to let anyone down. It was mm. embarrassing as well. Mm. But, you know, I feel depressed for a few minutes, but I always pick myself up when yeah. I get these knockbacks. I do pick myself up mm. and think, oh, well, never mind. And just think about, well, what can I do? So if yeah. it had been sent back to me, I would have fixed it. Yeah. So It wouldn't why... have
0: been 100% perfect, but I would have fixed it. But why were you specifically out of all the, Programs that have ever been made. Why was it Doomwatch that you thought I really want to focus because my I attention? Because I fell in love with it. That's it. Simple as that. I, felt. Yeah. I first
1: saw it in 1990 when I was 18 or 19. Yeah. Most people are going out getting horny. <laughs> um, I was getting horny and watching Doomwatch, yeah. and sometimes I combined the two.
0: right uh, <laughs> my poor but first had you come to Doomwatch? He came seconds to Doomwatch. I'm afraid, you right. know? but had you come to Doomwatch via a different television route? Because it's a kind of random television program to sort of pick if you like or was it just Not that really. you saw it at a particular moment and thought that's the one for me
1: no what happened was it see when you're a doctor who fan like i mm. was growing up mm. and you're watching your blake sevens and you're mm. watching all the other sort of programs that are on like star cops mm. when you start collecting these things and you reach saturation point mm. you then start to look around for other programs and get uh, fixed
0: in another way it's like a drug isn't it you're trying to get something a bit stronger well i remember getting the tape the who killed toby wren and the red sky vhs that was the doom watch i saw about that era but then i couldn't find any of the others so i had two episodes of doom watch for a very long time so most people did but i was yeah. lucky in that
1: i had a friend in Scotland, a pen pal right he introduced me to missing doctor who episodes on audio which in right. those days were practically unlistenable you know <laughs> like but hey you persevere occasionally you get a fantastic quality soundtrack um then when i came back from a after my A-levels, I went abroad for a bit, made some mm. little bit of money and um, hired a, a video recorder We didn't have right. one in the house. And so my pen pal then said, well, I've been collecting what we were pleased to call telefantasy. Mm. And one of the things that you really recommended was Doomwatch. And he sent me a few articles about it. And I said, yeah, this sounds good. I couldn't mm. imagine how an episode played out. What mm. was the dramatic structure of an episode? And Doctor mm. Who, you know what happens. Lands on the planet, runs around, gets shot at, investigate the cause and goes off at the end. Mm. Doomwatch, I, it just sounded fascinating. And I was reading about the Plastic Eaters, where the plane melts and falls apart yes. and crashes when I was on the plane coming home. Always the best time. It's like that joke in the airplane movie when they're watching an airplane crash and the film screen. remember that bit? Um, so I've got this VHS four hours, uh, what's it called? E240. Right. Of Barely watchable television. And mm. I say, within the first five minutes, I fell in love with the programme. It was yeah. like, where have you been all my life?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, I know people these days will say, John Ridge pinching Pat Honeyset's bottom in the first scene. Mm. Well, Toby Ren did frown at that. You know, it wasn't mm. that. I say, this he's a dinosaur. But I just, I just loved the programme. I loved the mm. characters. I loved the situations they were in. Mm. I liked their commitment.
0: Mm.
1: It wasn't environmentalism. It was more like unchecked science. What yeah. happens when things...
0: Yeah, you do feel that these days... We could do with a bit more of that, really, you know, in the real world. Yeah. I mean, COVID, did it come from a laboratory or did it come mm.
1: from interaction with animals? We mm. just don't know yet, do we? That's a do-much theme. Mm. That's the sort of thing they think, oh, mm. yeah, 50-minute
0: play, please, mm. in two so, weeks' time. So, so as a show, this this is a show that lasted three seasons in the early 70s, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, and there's about, what, 39 of them all together, Roughly so? 39. I, can't, I can never tell yeah. you these sort of details no, on top fair of my enough. head and quite a lot of it is gone it's been thrown away wiped whatever the expression you want to uh, use it so how do you set about researching the stuff i mean you can watch the videotapes you can find the names of the actors and everything like that but the stuff that's gone where do you start with that the scripts right the, all now, the scripts exist yes you can watch. except
1: ironically the one that doesn't exist is sex and violence the right. episode that was never shown which mm. does exist yeah And it shouldn't by rights. It should have been wiped a few months Mm. later. But they said to the director, would you like to have one last watch of this before we Mm. get rid of it? And somehow it survived. And Mm. I'm so glad it does. Now then, there were... Now, this is the thing. This is the core thing about Doomwatch and the people who enjoy it as much as I do. We want to know what happened in those missing episodes. We had no... We didn't have a clue. Mm. The write-ups in the Radio Times are generally quite, to be honest, feeble. Mm. The uh, third series... The little write-up in the radio times would be like a couple of lines of dialogue, mm. which was usually quite ponderous stuff, pompous stuff, you know. Yeah. And there was no real other way. I, I once went through my local newspaper to see if there's any clues mm. in their listings for mm. um, 1972.
0: Mm. Not a sausage. Mm.
1: So what? And there weren't
0: sort of reviews of last night's TV or anything like that. It was, it Very didn't f- get covered. Not in my local rag. No. Now, of course, you can
1: find these things out through the British newspaper archive. Mm. You can find tons of material, which is fantastic, a marvelous resource. So, um, I heard that there were PDFs of some of the missing episode scripts floating around, but mm. who to approach? Who to ask? And. I ah oh, remember there's a guy called Anthony Brown. He was researching Doomwatch in the early 1990s, and I mm. met him because he was a friend of a friend. And we all got together in London, and I practically interrogated him about this <laughs> episodes. That's if he stick to the ruddy point and mm. actually tell me what was going on in Deadly Dangerous Tomorrow or Inquiry.
0: Mm. Does the Inquiry sound as boring as the title suggests? Mm. You know, Are these people that you were talking to, these people actually saw the episodes when they were transmitted, because there's quite a few people who talk about Ace of Wands the first couple of years that's lost and. They say that nobody seems to be able to actually tell them what happened in these episodes. So were these first person viewers from the time or was it
1: No, Anthony Brown wasn't a viewer. He'd seen the scripts and no. the BBC's right. old script unit before it got right. closed down and he made copious notes. Mm-hmm. He was gonna do his own book, but back in the nineties getting published was far more difficult than it yeah. is now, as I'm gonna prove in a, a few months' time, hopefully. Mm-hmm um So, fast forward about 10 years or so, there was someone on the website. He started producing storylines of the missing episodes, mm. but he only got as far as the end of the first series. I got in mm. touch with him and said, oh, Are you going to do the third series? I, said, I don't have them. So, there were some scripts in circulation as PDFs mm. that you could share. I didn't get them until I joined up with Scott at yeah. doomwatch.org and they helped him storyline a lot of these things because I had a part time job then in the family. So, I had mm-hmm. plenty of time to um help him boost his site. I'm so grateful they got that chance to do it. Mm. But there was about a good six or seven scripts which weren't readily available. Mm. Uh, Scott went to the BBC's written archives in Caversham and he got copies of some of them. A private collector had scripts, I think, sourced from the actual writers when they were alive. Mm -hmm. Now, this was all confidential stuff. It was to be seen and not copied and stuff like that. And Mm. I occasionally get asked by people, can I have a look at them? And my answer is always no. Mm. I don't have them all as nice. Lined up PDFs, mm. a lot of them in all sorts of different formats, mm. and I've given my word not to share them, so sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, I, I tried to be as detailed as I could on the website, mm. you can practically read the things on there. Yeah. But I think the website's changed over the years, mm. so it's no longer doomwatch.org. Mm. Plus, uh, my books, I try to go into much more detail, mm. telling the story of a missing episode. Plus, because of the delay in Prophets of Doom, the Doomwatch book. I had this idea. I went to see the writer Martin Worth in London at his home. Three of his episodes were missing. Mm. And I had the scripts. And I said, do you fancy me publishing these or if, if Milk are interested? Mm. And he said, of course. I've got no problem with that. So mm-hmm. that sort of gave me an idea. Let's do a script book of missing mm-hmm. episodes. Milk said, yes, it's a good idea. And I got in touch with the Terence Dudley estate. And they were over the moon at the idea of theirs being published. No mm-hmm. fees. Mm-hmm. Something I'm a bit ashamed of. I couldn't offer any money. No. Writers should be paid. And uh, then I got in touch with Ian Curtis, who yeah. was alive. He again was enthusiastic and he put me in touch with his agent. I thought, oh mm. dear, here we go. And she was absolutely fantastic because I've been talking to another client of hers about Doomwatch, mm. whose script was not made. Mm. And so it was wonderful. Again, you know, untried, untested. And yet I was getting all this help from professionals. Mm. So we put this together, this book very quickly, and unfortunately, it shows in the actual printing of it. It's called Deadly Dangerous Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it technically, that was my first book, and it had a whacking great spelling error on the spine of the book. So for about oh, five was it seconds, joined? I was euphoric, holding it in my hands, going, yeah. "My baby, my baby." Yeah. I looked at the spine and went, "Ah, oh, oh, no, sense to me." And it became a running joke with the company. It was like, "This is what happens. Mm-hmm. It's my fault because I wanted to be called editor, not mm-hmm. compiler." Mm-hmm. So they changed that, but.
0: For some reason, they missed out the spine. Right. Still, so I'm taking the blames, not... not yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> but you came at it from the point of view of the writers. Is the writers always where you start with these things? Are they the people that, that most most impress you or, or 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 feel underrated?
1: Well, if you're telling a story about a TV show, you have to start with the writers because mm-hmm. they're the ones who create it. I'm currently working on half a dozen books mm-hmm. about lost 1960s television programs. Yeah. And you have to start with the writer. Yeah. A biography. I've done a Kit peddler biography and my Douglas Canfield biography. Mm-hmm. The approach to writing a biography is different. You may come to your subject with a few preconceived ideas mm. of who they are and what they are, mm. but you have to do all your research first. You have to mm. talk to people, get all your materials mm. far and wide. Nothing's too trivial. Mm. Then you see the shape. Because uh, yeah. normally, I, I normally tell the story of someone's life from beginning, from cradle to grave, naturally. Yeah. And I always have a sort of nice rambling introduction at the beginning which is a sort of modern thing with biography about setting out your stall of what you're trying to sh- demonstrate in the book it's a bit like those horrible essays in the purpose of this essay I, aim to demonstrate <laughs> I hate that I absolutely hate it and when I see people do that in sort of more
0: casual lectures I just sort of think oh god yeah. Yeah. it's interesting though isn't it because the difference between the biography and the autobiography is subtle but they do sometimes use the same kind of structure, don't they? It's very much a kind of lateral, straightforward line through. And yet sometimes you read one and they start in the middle. And there are books, biographies, autobiographies about people where really the only bit that people are interested in is that year they did, say, filming The Prisoner and everything else or whatever. You
1: skip skip all the early stuff, which is often the most interesting and get to the stuff you want to read. I've done that. So is it um,
0: psychology, though? This, is, I suppose, is what I'm trying at. Do you feel you have to actually dissemble the person or, or analyse the person to understand them before you can write the book?
1: Yes. Mm. And the process doesn't stop. Mm. Even when you're writing the book, you're starting to make connections. I work a sort of manual jobs, physical jobs, and so my brain's quite free a lot of the time. Mm. And I, I've made the most weird connections in my head, and they don't go away until I've written it down mm. about someone's life. And they think, well, hang on, do you think this... Like mm. Kit Peddler's life or... It was trying to trace that path mm. from him being a, a research scientist who was doing really well, getting the mm. prizes, getting the acclaim, starting mm. to get media attention about his work with the eye, using new technology like the electron microscope to discover how the retina worked, discovering all these layers of extra cells mm. and things in the eye, which, and then thinking, is vision being processed in that bit there? Or was it being processed in the brain? Mm. All this sort of fundamental research going on. Yes. To a background of scrambling around for money. How did he get from that to building a wooden chassis for his car? Because it's Mm. ecologically sounder. (laughs) Why did he become what he would have called himself a Gaian Mm. and try to live a life with as little impact on the earth as possible? What was the journey? And Mm. Doctor Who helped. Mm. If it wasn't for him doing Doctor Who and the Cybermen, the BBC wouldn't have commissioned him to do much with Jerry Davis, Mm. which caused him to fall out with his research colleagues because they said, Mm. you know, you're a scientist. You shouldn't be writing this sort of rubbish, Mm. you know. Scientists for the scientists. Politicians make the decisions. Mm. What we do, you know, we can make a nuclear bomb that's going to destroy the whole planet. But hey, if it gets used, not my fault. are <laughs> saying yes, it is. Well, yeah, I mean or that's. Responsibility. I, I,
0: I suppose that comes from you're a research scientist. You read more. You read more. You suddenly find out this is happening and this is happening. And and watch really comes from, oh my God, I've read this terrible thing about what's happening to the world or what will happen to the world if we don't if this Mm. goes unchecked and i'm fascinated really about how that became was it just a chance meeting with somebody from the bbc or did someone phone him up who was a researcher or or was it what the creation of
1: too much no
0: how did he sort of make the swerve into television really oh
1: well the way he tells it he says he he was fascinated by tv and he Mm. he used to watch dr who's Mm. because he's had young children and Mm. What happens was i think it was tomorrow's world came to his research lab in judd street in london as i say around about 64 65 he was making all these interesting discoveries about mm. the eye and so occasionally signed programs wanted to interview him and mm. it started around about 64 65 he did a few mm. bits of radio then tomorrow's world came down right. for a couple of days to film him and interview him and the story goes he was talking to the producer or raymond baxter even saying how do i break into television But that's their story. But Jerry Davis will tell you, he got in touch with the, or Innes Lloyd will tell you that they got in touch with the outside broadcast units who dealt with science programs. Mm. So they said, do you know anyone who who can help us? They weren't looking for a scientific advisor. Mm. That's another thing I was always trying to hammer home to people. They weren't looking for someone to go through the scripts and put in the word cyclotron or something like that, just to give it a science speech. They were looking for someone who understood science fiction. Right because none of the writers they had had a grounding in science fiction. Mm. They were the sort of people who could write a good episode of compact, sit in the yeah. glossy magazine or um, United the mm. football. They were the sort of writers, Dr. Hill's
0: employing serious, sort
1: of yeah. serious know, hacks to put it without being insulting. Well, well the, could you can take the
0: elements of a, a crime drama and turn it into a space drama. Or yeah. it, you can take the same elements and do it. Yeah, and once, some,
1: you some of the science fiction backgrounds. That's, that's mm. when, but Kit, of course, being a scientist, uh, science fiction it's got science in it and mm-hmm. technology he, he understood computers because he was mm. using the computers at the time hence the war machine mm. but he also wanted someone who wasn't going to be boring and mm. say no you can't do that mm. no and that well, can't happen i suppose it's the also that... can't take over the world no <laughs> <You want> someone <laughs> of an imagination
0: But that era, I suppose, is also, you've got this notion that, I mean, this is the era of the moon landings and everything like that were coming, weren't they? So I suspect people needed to, when they were doing programmes about that, they needed it to look like it was convincing. It needed to look like it made sense from what the viewer's level. Because, I mean, the viewer sitting at home is very good at just sitting there going, well, that's rubbish, you know. I mean, the thing that always gets me about certain amount of old science fiction is the reason all those clunky button things are so big is because they have to have batteries in. But if you'd actually faked it and said, oh, something that's actually the size of a modern iPhone, people at home would have gone, well, where's the power source? (laughs) Mm. And you've got to convince the viewer sitting at home that what you're talking about makes sense. And so actually getting someone like a, a real scientist even... A scientist who has a different specialty on board would help with that story. No,
1: so. that wasn't his job. His job was right. to generate science fiction ideas. That was it, so that, right? Hence the Cybermen, yeah hence the war machines. That was his job. He, he was, I think, originally they gave him a chance to write a storyline, mm. and then next time they gave him a chance to write a script, which is quite unheard of to give an right. untested writer, never mind his academic qualifications, to write four minutes of television, which is quite a strict exercise. Yeah. So no, his job there was to provide ideas, not to sort of make a spaceship look convincing. That wasn't right. his job at all. Yeah, that's In a sense. big misconception that you hear about from people saying, mm. "Why did he get this right? Why did he get mm. that right?" It wasn't his job, and also his job was not to be accurate. Mm. They wanted to provide exciting television. Yeah. You may remember Anne Lawrence, the Daily Worker. I think it is she criticised Underwater Menace. Mm. It was on saying it was rubbish, and then when Moonbase on, she said, "This is lovely. It feels authentic. It's mm. a good story to it." Mm. So that was Kit was there. And I think he, he was trying to write plausible science fiction rather than mm. authentic science fiction, because right. Doctor Who's not there to be authentic. Mm. But Doomwatch, much oh, yes. Well, it's he a big there. what if, that's... isn't it?
0: That's the thing. Yeah. It's a big what if. So would you say then that the Cybermen, the idea of the Cybermen is what led directly to Doomwatch, or not? Is it just that idea of science going bad, if you like? Do you feel that sort of got the, the cogs turning in his brain? Not so much science going bad as the direction it was going in. Right. It's one thing having
1: a transplant or something that's gone wrong mm. in your body and having it replaced. Replacing something because it could be improved, that's a different mm. matter. But what Kit's real theme at the time was it, was what he would call dehumanized societies.
0: Right.
1: Which he felt computers were going to lead to a dehumanized society if we let machines run everything. Mm-hmm. Very 1960s theme. I was going to say paranoia, but that's not very fair. That sort of led towards Doomwatch, but also... He went to lots of conferences. He met lots of scientists.
0: Mm.
1: And there was a lot of things going on in the air that the road of science and technology wasn't always going to be. Everything was going to be brilliant at the end of it. Yeah. So that's what led to Doomwatch. Mm. So I say Doomwatch wasn't an environmental program. It was about what is science going to do to us? Mm. So like one of the early episodes called Friday's Child was about heart transplants was now a commonplace event. Mm. But uh, is it ethical or is it right to produce a homunculus Mm. organ bank? A sort of living child whose mm. only purpose in life is to provide organs and be killed off, in mm. say in 10 years time, even if that boy is decerebrate, i.e. no brain function, mm. those sort of issues, which all came about from the early days of heart transplant experiments and test tube baby experiments, which was a very new thing then. And of course, um, Kit does an episode like that where he did the storyline for it and Harry Green wrote the script, a very mm. good one it is too. I only wish it survived that episode mm. And then of course, the next day after transmission, there was some press release about a breakthrough in, mm. I can't pronounce it, in Virtue Fertilization, mm. which made people think, oh, hang on, I saw that in last night's Doom Kit <laughs> predicted this, didn't he? Yeah. And so he got this Kudos. not unwarranted yeah. 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 media gift of prophecy mm. that became uh-huh. known as Dr. Doom. So. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, it was Doom Watch yeah. that changed his life for really. it. Yeah. And that's what I was
0: trying to do in that. Yeah. Was it a loved? program or was it a very disliked program? Did it cause ructions at the time? By whom? Well, by the BBC, by government, by was it a program that caused problems for them? It was a big success
1: for the BBC for its time mm. slot and the BBC loved it. Mm. What they didn't love was when it became controversial. Mm. Like the fourth episode, Tomorrow of the Rat, which you would have seen because it was mm. released on BBC Video. Yeah, That one had um, quite a lot of gory stuff in it. And um, of course the guy who wrote it, directed it and produced it was the same man. So mm. there's no one there saying, no, calm down. That's going a bit too far. <laughs> Somebody else's the, um... fault, yeah. And of course, it's got the city scene of the rats attacking Robert Powell. Which is the, which is all,
0: the clip they always show, isn't it? Which yeah. Is, which you don't is see really... the Does it an injustice? Up really? yeah.
1: and um, the close-up of the girls screaming at it. Mm. So it's a very good episode. Mm. And the fact Terrence Studley did that one, he was very much on board at that point, mm. on the side of the programme. But he didn't like anything that preached. He didn't want a preachy programme. No, He wanted to explore the issues. And Terrence Studley had a much more... Not old-fashioned. Again, that's the wrong sort of word to use. Yeah. But he had a more philosophical approach to these sort of things. And, of course, being told by the BBC to tone things down, he had to. Now, scientists hate seeing themselves on the television because they always mm. feel unrepresented. Mm. Now, one of the other things I'm researching at the moment is R3, the first series about scientists, mm. looking at their dilemmas, how they work. Mm. Um, what sort of issues they faced, all that sort of stuff, mm. done as authentically as possible so as not to upset the scientific community because mm. if they were upset, they might decline invitations to appear on BBC science programmes. Mm. That was a genuine, genuine fear, as I was right. saying a memo, written by one Orby singer. But they wanted to do what Dixon and Doc Green did for the policeman. Right, Dixon or Doc Green was a policeman who policeman liked. Yep, yeah. yeah. and what's called, the public like, Dixon because mm. Dixon was how they wish the police were. and yeah. the police probably were quite rude to them, and mm. um, they think, oh, no, that nice little Dixon—that's the sort of policeman we want you to be like." Mm. I often think it's that way around. It should be seen.
0: Mm. So they wanted people to grow up to become scientists. scientists well, yeah,
1: you know, but no. Um, in R three, they wanted. Previously, scientists were shown to be either boffins, mm. crazy inventors, mm. mad scientists, yeah. or they bring doom to the poor equator Mass. He yeah, says, yeah. rocket up and um, comes down <laughs> with um, whatever that creature was in the yeah. first one. That marvellous... Mm. Oh, I, I always oh, love that
0: oh, line. I'm, I'm a scientist, if that means anything to you. And we think, where? Well, we saw you in the headlines two years ago, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But he said they're in Quatermass too. I'd have to say that I'd have to say that, yeah. Mm. So, so that's what they're so with R3, they're trying to be authentic as best mm. they could in the drama. So you've got yeah. dilemmas and all sorts of things. They had a regular core team mm. and a lot of, sort of this week's guest star type uh scientists who's troubled about mm. something. And of course, some oh, here we go again. It's like they Did one episode about a pharmaceutical company, mm. and on the next day, they got a letter from the public relations man of the pharmaceutical union saying, mm. You've misrepresented our <laughs> trade in that one scene. You think you can't do anything right, you know, because he was scratching the right side of his face, not the left side of
0: his yeah. face. You see, we find that I with you everything, yeah. strips in future. yeah. You, you always get this, yeah. I mean, this is the but thing the no matter what, to- no matter what, the point of view, everybody has one, and though, so you're never going to please all the people all the time. But the problem is that we listen sometimes mm. to some more than others you know it's a very peculiar world fandom more, they're television.
1: the ones that might get the headlines
0: yes oh. true yes the bbc it's producer fury
1: who... at this program and the fury yeah. comes from two people and that, <laughs> but there's your headline
0: well that's how the papers work now isn't it sort of trawling twitter for controversy i think that's oh yeah kind it's of one t- of those things that goes
1: on. i do like twitter and i'm very selective in who i follow and
0: Quite right what too. I, you know what i read but so uh, i'm really trying to work out that. do much finished did it finish voluntarily or did it get sort of
1: quietly? it come to the end of the road. Yeah. Do Much finished in August 1972, so all that's right. 50 years ago. Okay. And it had come to the end of its team. Mm. And the series was delayed from the previous one to mm. give it more time to get the scripts right because the second series was very, very rushed. Mm. And there was big behind-the-scenes bust-ups and dramas with mm. writers, and all sorts of things. So they wanted more time. The BBC had this habit then of, saying, that was a great first series. We want a second series in three months' time. Yeah. So there's always a big scrabble for scripts which we'll oh, never write. Yeah. And that's what happened on Doomwatch. So nothing so like publishers then, really. the Oh, yeah. Well, we learned <laughs> from that one. We learned from that one. Right. But um, uh, it took me two years to do the Kit pedobiography biography and another three right. to do the Douglas Canfield one.
0: What drew you to those particular characters? Uh, I mean, we've obviously covered Kit and why you, you wanted to write that one. Uh, but why Douglas Canfield, of all people?
1: Well, I was at work one day and I had this vision in my head of being in a party. And there right. he was with a drink in his hands, sort of Charlie looking at me and looking like that. You know? It's like, <laughs> they choose you rather than you right. choose them. It's an old cliche, that one, but it's true. Mm. And over the years, I've been absolutely fascinated by the man. Cause every mm. time you read an interview of someone who'd worked with him or knew him or like mm. John Chaddes who lived next door to him, mm. there's always something slightly off center about the man, mm. which was fascinating. Liz Slade in her posthumous autobiography said, when she visited his home or something she heard that he had an, an old air raid bunker at the bottom of his garden right. stuffed with um tins of things waiting for the next world war so they're unprepared right. they asked the son about that is that true he said well, yeah he didn't like to stock up and prepare for things <laughs> that was his um army days yeah. as well
0: didn't keep old film cans in there did you <laughs> no afraid not no
1: he wasn't an archivist no no what's left of well i looked through his bits and pieces when I visited mm. his son a couple of times. He wasn't interested in yesterday's work. He was mm. interested in today's project and hopefully tomorrow's project. So you know, he never kept mm. copies. He took the odd photograph like when his son was a murder victim in an episode of Paul Temple. Right. There's, a, there's a few slides of the um, Paul Temple credit list at the end showing his right. son, John Canfield, and He took a picture of that as a proud dad. Fair enough. Um, it's interesting though because I, I
0: I watched The Nightmare Man as prep for this this morning and ooh. what strikes me about Douglas Camfield as a tv director he's he's actually pretty much the best at that kind of television and i'm not sure whether he made that would have made the leap to the modern era but the stuff he was doing for its time is head and shoulders above a lot of other work that's going on isn't
1: it i often hear the word cinematic and i never quite know what they're supposed to mean by cinematic mm. because cinematic is to me wide screen big long shots and things mm. I don't quite know what they're on about there, but Nightmare Man's a good example because you give him a strip with atmosphere, he'll Mm. create that atmosphere. Mm. You give him a strip which wants tension and drama, Mm. he'll give you that in bucket loads. He knows how to generate suspense because he knows it comes from the face, the eyes, and the hands. Mm. You'll sometimes see one of his productions one of his characters will do something with his hand. It will tap the table mm. in a sort of rhythmically way. Just You see it in Dalek Plan actually, mm. a few times. He just knows how to generate tension, and he mm. knows how to get his actors to communicate fear, tension, horror, you name it. Mm. He didn't have many opportunities to do that, but when he had other sort of programs, which you think were more, I don't know, like say say, Zed cars or Lotus mm. Eaters, which don't require so much, he can still create atmosphere when he wants to. Mm. And the Lotus Eaters is a very good one. And one of the episodes, it begins with this woman driving a car in Crete, mm. beautiful scenery. And it looks like she's got a gun in her glove compartment. Mm. And then she goes to her house. She's searching for every room. She's got the gun. And there's a guy sunbathing outside. We're asking ourselves, what's going on? What's mm. happening? Is she going to kill him? Mm. And then when she finds him, ha ha, points at him and lights a cigarette. There's a cigarette lighter. <laughs> but the build up to that is very, yeah. very good. That's his secret. You know, he liked Hitchcock. Mm. He learned from Hitchcock and mm. he learned from everyone. Mm. You know, he was a sponge when it came to mm. absorbing other people's ideas and influences and mm. then channeling it through his own work. He had a visual eye, that's his strength. You know, he had characters get close to each other when they're mm. talking. He always saw their faces. He wasn't one of those irritating directors where you see back of heads all the time.
0: Mm.
1: Really annoys me that when I say, I want to see their face. No, mm. always in the back of their heads. Mm. So, yeah. I'm not actually an expert on direction. I've had this pointed out to me by mm. someone who read the book and didn't really like because my view of directors wasn't their view of directors. Mm. And that's about as best as I can get. No, I think, videos. but as,
0: as a television director, it's interesting to me how visual his stuff is, but also mm. how very much you can actually spot the Camfield style. Now, maybe that's the military aspect coming through or whatever. and And I know he worked a lot with, Graham Harper. Uh, Only twice. Really? Seems like a doom and nightmare, man. You get the impression they work together a lot. (laughs) He seems to have certainly influenced Graham Harper in terms of the way he approaches his directing, if you see what I mean. It's this military campaign thing, isn't it?
1: Organisation and planning. Mm. Simple as
0: that. That's what
1: Canfield had as a director. He had organisation and planning absolutely down to T. I did like yeah, the he's... fact
0: of just watching Nightmare Man how one plot point just comes down to a different type of salute and I felt that's that's so camfield, it's kind of yes. And I just thought that is a very camfield thing. I don't know, he I don't would know have whether loved that was that. no, yeah. he would have loved that. I think
1: it's in the book. Mm. I could be wrong, but certainly in the script, Robert mm. Holmes's script. He, 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 he tightened up he, you're actually
0: working on a Nightmare Man book, is that correct? Yeah, uh,
1: I was asked by Phantom to write about a particular tv series mm. for a range of books they're producing mm. this was three years ago now three and a half right. years ago and i chose the nightmare man simply because i had the outside broadcast schedule for the whole right. shooting and i got in touch with dear old richard bignall who mm. sent me the scripts because mm-hmm. he, he researched an article with it some years ago and so i, I uh, came up with an idea of how to write about it. what's well, basically four episodes yeah
0: four half which hours isn't so. much
1: You know, you can't sort of psychoanalyse
0: this. What struck me me this morning, I was thinking, you know what, if they remade this now, it would be eight to ten episodes that were an hour each, probably in Swedish, but there we go. And each of the 15-minute segments just about would cover an hour. And I feel that that languid storytelling that they do now mm. and the commandos arriving on the beach would be the climax of an episode. And it's kind of like just halfway yes. through an episode, isn't it? It's kind of, it's four very taut half hours of television yes. that tell a story incredibly well. Yeah, absolutely
1: right. And you can imagine then we'd have explored the private lives of probably half of the islanders mm. as well. Yeah. There have been all sorts of red herrings going on there. Yes, I, I, can, I can see that actually. I, I think it might send in the proposal tomorrow. I think it could
0: work actually. I think we're- well, Have you ever read the book? I have. I have got the book. I read it a long time ago. Yeah, and you may remember a lot of it's
1: set in snowdrifts. And another thing I do in my book is I compare each scene. I do it scene Mm. by scene, and show what the script says and what the book says, Mm. not literally because I can't break copyright, and uh, see how Robert Holmes worked as an adapter. Mm. And then talk about how what Douglas well not so much what but Douglas did, but the production itself and how what scene was shot where and how anything Mm. interesting. One of the joys of this was I got in touch with a lot of the location owners.
0: Right. This is only Cornwall pretending to be Scotland, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And typically I can't remember the name of the place. I want to call it Port Maddock but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I got in touch with a lot of them and I got in touch with the council. Now they're so used Hmm. to inquiries about that TV show that's shot up there at the moment with Martin Clunes, Doc Martin. Oh, right. Okay. That's the major location Hmm. of the place. And so they are delighted to be able to talk about something else. And I got some wonderful responses from people with marvellous memories. One guy pointed out that the map you see in the Nightmare Man is Mm. upside down and it's the Isle of Skye. (laughs) He was working out things like that for me. The sad thing is having to wait three years for the thing to be published. So I want to send them the book and say, thank you for your hard efforts. So um, if you've got this sort of information, you can make a good book.
0: Mm. And I'm doing something similar for other programmes. I've
1: been able to look at the production files. And they don't well, always exist as production files. But again, it's
0: the beauty, isn't it, of actually unpeeling the onion. An old television show can sit on a shelf, and to be honest, a lot of these of that era, there's not much paperwork about. And some BBC no. stuff has a lot more paperwork, but a lot of ITV stuff, for some various reasons, they didn't keep it. But it's Port Isaac, Port Isaac, yes. But but as a show, I mean, the thing that surprised me is it starts out as a serial killer. Thing. <laughs> hmm. It becomes a kind of monster thing you know is is it a sea monster yes then it becomes an alien thing yes because oh are they from all red herrings? yeah but it switches in the course of those four episodes from yes from serial killer to monster from what is it yeah what is it and i think that's an incredible trick to pull you see what i don't understand about it is it's this it's this one-off four-part serial can't remember what what night of the week was it was it it, friday Friday nights, and you just kind of think there's no real space in the schedule for that sort of thing anymore. Because was it part of some other shows that also were four part serials, and then this one? No, out? it was. Just, looked, just I, the one I looked off- through the schedules of the year yeah. to see
1: what it was, and um, I can't tell off the top of my head what other sort of dramas were being played out. But that slot was quite a flexible slot. I think Friday mm. nights you were. I think mm. Des O'Connor came on before, right? And Points of View came on afterwards, right? And then we have this. Now, here's the thing. This is what always struck me is the story goes, it's the producer mm. who gives two books to his secretary and says, that read these over the weekend because mm. you haven't got a life, obviously, <laughs> and tell me which one I should make as a serial. And she right. came back and said, Nightmare Man. Now, Nightmare Man, in the first few pages, there's this woman coming on the island who we see briefly at the beginning of the program. Mm. And she goes to the beach and sees this strange UFO thing on the beach, mm. realizes she's being followed, Goes home Goes in the house Phew He's not in here And Mm. gets brutally killed Mm. When the guy Playing golf Michael Gafferkin Whose name is different In the book Mm. Goes and finds her body There's a bit over there There's a bit in front of him Mm. And in the book Her organs are glistening In the sunlight Hanging down from the trees Now This secretary She's going Oh this would make good eight (laughs) pounds On the Friday night There's snow drifts. End of the working week. <laughs> there's huge visual set pieces in this wonderfully written book where, you know, in the TV show, you talked about the, the Russian army coming on their submersible things onto mm. the beach. Where in the book, it's a good air convoy and they're parachuting mm. down, which you just do not do during a blizzard. Mm. As they say in the book, now these guys are mad.
0: Mm.
1: How on earth are you going to afford that? But I suppose that the BBC's attitude oh, we can trim this right down to the bone, <laughs> can't we? Yeah, we can do this. It's, mm. But it's wonderful that she did. And who thought, let's do a story about a serial killer mm. pre-Watershed mm. and make it not tame, but again, it's all suggestion. Mm. So when Gaffigan finds the body on the beach, again, mm. it's we see an arm coming out of frame. Mm. or oh, is that part of a body? But then mm. he looks to his left or his right, and then we see a leg, mm. and then he looks in another direction. And I think there's another limb, I mm. think. Mm. That is about as gruesome as it got mm. and it's all suggestions so when they find the head they tell mm. us there's the head over there mm. and they're not very pleased about what they're seeing um morris ray eves is brilliant at communicating that and that's the whole mm. essence of acting communication and that's what he does brilliantly as a director mm. douglas carroll communicating
0: do you feel that nightmare man feels because of that four-part structure and everything does it feel like a doctor who story that didn't have doctor who in it or yes or yeah yes is that robin holmes's technique though or is it just that's just the nature of the way it came out. No, just the, it's just the
1: nature of the way it happens, the story. You can imagine the TARDIS landing and, oh, I wonder where we are, Sarah Jane. Mm. Oh, look, there's someone down there looking quite upset. Oh, look, there's a dead body, you know, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah, I can you can see that being a type of Doctor Who mm. story. But then the story also explores relationships on the island. So Celia mm. Imri starts off as this really cheerful, bubbly, happy-go-lucky girl mm. wearing a daring dress and a Scottish press. I'm assuming it's a Presbyterian island or it could mm. be a staunch Catholic uh, mm. Hebridean uh, not Hebrides, I don't think it's you know, all the Orkney's one of the two
0: mm. where it's set. Daring type well, I'm, I'm trying to think non-married how you, how relationship. You, how you pronounce sky upside down and I can't quite do it. <laughs> so. yes. 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 Yes.
1: Yes. 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 There we go. So um there's that going on and the course of the story, her her relationship with this island she loves and says, I'm not gonna leave it. If you mm. want to marry me, you're gonna marry the island. Mm. And the episode, she just becomes more and more depressed Mm. as she's having to face that there's this horrible monster tearing the life out of their community. Mm. You often hear about a murder in a village and say the village has changed. Mm. One horrific, violent act Mm. completely for a generation will completely. And of course, what was going on at the time of Nightmare Man's production? The Yorkshire Ripper. Of course. He was caught in January. Mm. And there's a line in part one, you may remember, in the hotel. Mm. They're just asking, they found a body, but they haven't told anyone about it yet. They just want to see if anyone's missing. Mm. And um, the woman in the bar sussed it out. She says, um, they didn't even say if it was a man or a woman. And She says, mm. something happened. And then she goes, it's a woman, isn't it? It's mm. always the woman. It's always the woman. And of course, it's Yorkshire Ripper. And the trial went on during Nightmare Man.
0: Right.
1: Okay. It's one of those, I don't want to say... Joyous things to discover because it's, it's one of those grim things to discover. Mm. Well, well, this doing was... research, I went through the first six months of the year mm. of 1981 and the last bits of 1980 when they're mm. doing the rehearsals to see what was going on in the world. You know, John mm. Lennon got shot in the end mm. of 1980, and mm. I say the Yorkshire Ripper was coming to the end of his reign of mm. terror. Uh, you discover things like this, and you think, hmm, that probably explains why actually she thought this might be a good idea. We got this murderer.
0: Do you think it would have, as a concept, Nightmare Man? As a one off works very well, but actually, those characters could have carried other series, couldn't they? If do you think, or do you not feel that would have really worked? I don't
1: know. Really. I mean, it depends how many more sort of new, I was just new, sort of, new, of looking at you know, bionic. I was,
0: just, I was thinking about the two leads, you know, the two leads, yeah, yeah I suppose together, so.
1: Sort of. doing what, those well, <laughs> I, <know>. I mean, <laughs> go, going off, like minute. their man's a science fiction mystery, so they'd have to mm. sort of keep popping up and having more science fiction mm-hmm. mysteries. I suppose he's a dentist, I suppose tonight's. He comes across a patient who says some weird goings on mm. down the factory. He goes, "Hmm, this is a case for me and Celia Rimery. Um Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. But <laughs> but Morris is interesting. How the last shot of the series is actually the policeman.
0: Yes, yes. Morris, Rory the Eaves great Morris roles and, and James Cosmo. Yes, James Cosmo, of course. Yes,
1: uh, James Cosmo is word. one of those
0: people who I mean, he turns up in Dick Barton and all sorts of things. He was he had these small roles in lots of things for donkey shoes, and then suddenly yeah. had this incredibly high profile, didn't he? In, in, and
1: his father, of course, was um, James Copeland,
0: right. who
1: was Celrus in the Crotons. Yes, of course. Remember him And um, an angry Scotsman and IE being served. <laughs> but if you watch a lot of television from that period, he often pops up in these things, playing sort of rather strict. Apparently, he was a very strict father. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that James Cosmo felt quite at home in that island. That's one thing he didn't explore, which is another couple of episodes. I love to have seen them explore the relationships in the island. Because as I say, mm. it's a Scottish island. Some are Catholic, some are Presbyterian. Mm. Some places you don't breathe on a Sunday. You keep mm. your curtains shut. The only thing you read is the Bible. You mm. have no radio, no television. My dad in the 1950s used to play in the Royal Army military called Band. Mm. And they go touring around the country. And he said, Scotland, everything stopped on a Sunday. Right. It was that sort of attitude. You know, the pub's yeah. shut. If you're an alcoholic, you went to the shed at the bottom of the garden, did it? There. Right. Okay. I'd love to have seen a bit more of that in the Nightmare Man. Actually, a bit more flavour,
0: a bit more of the community. Well, I suppose it's difficult yeah, when, you're,
1: when you're doing it in Cornwall, trying to be Scotland. Well, they chose than that Cornwall. Comes... They chose Cornwall because there was an extra hour of light in the right. evening, on okay. uh, the afternoon rather, because they shot it in January, February, which is a daft time of year. If you think about it, they could have been snowed in. But the area they picked is the driest part of Cornwall, apparently. Mm. So the golf course website will tell you where they filmed some of the mm-hmm. um, the beach scenes, the with the Russians. That's the golf clubhouse, mm. and one extra hour. If they shot it in Scotland, it would have mm. been dark by about three o'clock. So that's the um,
0: story mm. of that. But Camfield did have form, didn't he, of making the home counties or parts of the south of England look like Scotland, and that's the BBC uh, and, for you. And and sun pits look like North Africa. Doomwatch went to Dorset to film Scotland in the episode right. in the
1: dark. Okay. Yeah, and um, they went to Swanage to film the City Isles. Right. And then they went to the Silly Isles to, to shoot the South Pacific. <laughs> yeah, I'm scratching my head as well. It's, it's probably how much money. The serious department is a very strange department. The BBC It, it, it seems so underfunded. Mm. They seem to lack so much imagination. Mm. I mean, there's an episode of Softly Softly, which is about the aftermath of a train crash. Mm. And the train crash is basically a man on a bike <laughs> listening to a stock record of doo do, you know, and crash. And he sort of goes, good grief runs to a phone box and um i'm misremembering obviously but that's how it stays in my memory and then there's some very bad drainy color footage of a train crash i think mm. mm. could be- they have gone to the visual effects department mm. and said look you've done some good work on doctor who doing helicopters flying into the antarctic or something can you knock us up a quick train <laughs> crash <or something?" laughs> no seriously for some subliminal mm. shots they could have done that beautifully visual spectacle for mm. a change
0: there must have been some sad and bitter old producers and directors, though, when Casualty suddenly would reconstruct <laughs> an entire train crash yes. and everything. They must have just sat there going, they wouldn't give me that. Not in Angels. In Angels, the story was about who cooked dinner that night. And, <laughs> okay,
1: I haven't watched that many episodes of the Angels. I'm sure it's um, oh, a bit right. more exciting than that. But
0: Do you think Holmes and Canfield made a good team? Do you, th- do you think they would oh, have yes. worked together actually working on the script? between well, them? Well, they both were. liked horror films, didn't they? Yeah. They like so conjuring up That sort of
1: atmosphere yeah. And Robert Holmes Didn't allow logic To interfere with his writing
0: <laughs>
1: I'm serious Watch Deadly Assassin Where the mm-hmm. hell's the logic In any of that Yeah
0: it's true I watched I it mean... this week Actually weirdly <laughs>
1: Alright here's the bit In part two They're up Talking to um coordinator Engin and Spanjol And the doctor suddenly goes What's that And then Engin says Oh that's the uh, Panotropic net It's all the brain cells the Doctor goes Of course That's how he did this That and the other I'm going in there <laughs> Now, where was the build up to that? Yeah. Nowhere. It's just like, let's go straight into that bit. And it does the same in part four.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, he's almost like a sketch writer in that respect. You see, I've done what the atmosphere and thing I want to do here. Now I've got to push the story on. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, that's how I see Robert Holmes. He is a sketch writer in a way, but he wrote beautiful stuff. He wrote beautiful characters and beautiful, and beautiful words. As well, and Blake's yeah. seven episode, Orbit, I think, is one of the all time greats. And, Fantastic think, episode, um, the, but you needed fifty episodes beforehand to get to that point to really feel the impact of Avon Hunting Villa.
0: Do you think that Camfield specifically was because he, he used to have a kind of like team, didn't he? A kind of a team of of actors he went to. There was a lot of people who who appeared with in his work a lot. Was it was it a loyalty thing? You
1: think? Not quite. He often would employ the same person two shows running mm. if the the role was right. Mm. But he would not go out. I mean, Kevin Stoney appeared in about five productions, but that's about Mm. it.
0: Mm. And
1: there's often big gaps between them. He would only cast you if he thought it was right.
0: Mm.
1: Small parts, the sort of parts Ian Fairbairn used to play, like Mm. a pathologist in uh, Van Der Volk or Mm. Dr. Chester, I think Mm. it was, in Seeds of Doom. Small parts like that he would give to people he would call mates Mm. because that's what actors would do, you know. Of course, it's work. Mm. But the bigger parts, no, he'd... He would use you, but he wouldn't use you exclusively. Mm. And I was told by some of the actors on Nightmare Man who had never worked with him before, he was going to employ them again. He said, yep, you're good. I'm going to use you again. Mm. And of course, he died. And didn't mm. use him. He didn't use him in Beaugest or yeah. Missing From Home, which was his next two, final two productions, or I don't know, his last productions.
0: Mm.
1: So as for the team, he, he had a lot of friends who were mm. in the business, and there's always lots of parties. His house was an open house. People would mm. just drop in, have a drink, have a cup of tea. He was a non-drinker listen to him play the spanish guitar very badly yeah. as is his want or well, very well <laughs> but very badly very well That's a strange right. thing okay. loyalty oh yes he engendered loyalty hmm.
0: so uh, as we, we crawl to the end bad. of our hour um Ooh. i just re- i know it's it's flown i'd love to have you back so we'll do that again sometime but we will i uh, just really want to is there anything you want to quickly talk about of the stuff that you've, you've got on the go at the moment
1: i'm revisiting my very first Doomwatch book the scripts hmm. Right. The missing episode scripts. I've got the three estates on board mm-hmm. who I already the sad thing is Martin Worthne and Curtis has recently died. Mm. So but their estates and their families have been very keen for this to happen again. And I've got a script that wasn't used by wow. Keith Dewhurst. That's going to be on it as well. That's going to be self-published, but not through mm. Lulu. It's going to be mm. properly I'm setting up my own imprint called Saturday yeah. morning press. Right. Um on the grounds that like my best stuff was always done on the Saturday morning. Now it's <laughs> after work I'm I'm straight on that laptop and getting things done. Think, yeah. And I'm I'm publishing the sort of things that other publishers won't touch because it's just simply not commercially viable. So these are going to be like very small print runs of, mm. hopefully, titles of interest to classic TV fans. Yeah. that's It's all going to be professionally done. I'm, I'm not going to be one of these dreadful ones who says, oh, I can do it all myself. No way. So I've got myself a decent editor on board. He's going to help me out. I'm looking for a decent artist for a couple mm. of covers and things. And I'm, mm. uh, it's going to be done in a couple of months. Hopefully the first one, the script book. Should be out November, December. That's what I'm aiming for. But nothing's been officially announced yet, so there's no real schedule at all. Then I'll be doing a few books on, let's say, obscure 60s programs like R3 and Swizzlewick, which I can't Mm -hmm. wait to unleash on the world. (laughs) Mary Whitehouse's first BBC kill. Well, we'll, and, we'll uh, definitely
0: look forward to that. I do think that the world of tele-watching, tele-viewing, certainly archive television watching, which is very niche in itself, is actually always served best by folk like yourself who actually make the effort to do these things. So Yes, it does take effort your... and <laughs> time and money. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, my and, pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and hopefully we will have you back at some point. So uh, Yeah, sure. You take care. Okay, and you. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Michael Seely for taking time out from his busy schedule to brave the frustrations of the unfettered technological marvel of a less-than-robust broadband connection to help bring this programme to you this week. And we wish him well with all of his publishing ventures and hope that he'll join us on the programme again soon. Meanwhile, that's just about it for yet another Vision on Sound. There's just time to thank everyone at Fab Radio International for keeping the gremlins out of the machinery. And as always, my thanks go out to all of you, whoever and wherever you are, for listening. As ever, I have been Martin, and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now, and take care.